Chris Galloway, my man. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Let's go. Hey, it's a pleasure. You know, you know it's so great meeting you at that phenomenal party. I love Sasha's spot. That's that is a that is a pad. Yeah, that is Miami lifestyle living. And uh, one thing that I find so fascinating is, you know, you've been in the world of finance for such a long time. I mean, you've seen a thing or two uh, over and over. You've seen certain things that might turn some people upside down. But to you, it's probably something that is, is very standard talking about big life changes, changes that are happening, world events. You've lived through it all. And I'm curious, though, looking at Miami, how does Miami compare to New York? as it was previously. Do you think Miami is the next New York or how do well, they compare? Believe it or not, I left New York in 09 and I left New York because of the crash, because of the derivative meltdown, the mortgage meltdown, the stock market crash. I was going through a nasty, ugly divorce. I was running a hedge fund. Everything in New York was meltdown. And I woke up one day and I said, you know what? Everyone in New York's miserable. This is like 08, 09. I said, if you're going to be miserable, you might as well be on the beach. Right. So then I, you know, my girlfriend at the time and I said, you know what? Let's go to Miami or Palm Beach, whatever, whatever you like, I'll go. So she goes, I'll kill myself in Palm Beach. Let's move to Miami Beach. So we moved to Miami Beach. And you know what? If you're going to be miserable, you might as well be on the beach. That's a, a phenomenal reality. So Miami is, you know, I've, I've been coming to Miami since I'm like nine years old. It's always been sort of like a vacation spot for me. You know, being a New Yorker, you know, it's like two and a half hour flight from New York. So easy. So it's like the sixth borough. Yeah. So I love Miami. And I think Miami now is truly being discovered by all the New Yorkers. In fact, there's too many New Yorkers now down here now. Yeah. It's interesting because COVID brought this onslaught of humans to Florida. And it's great for the tax advantages and all this stuff. But they're building a lot right now. Do you think they're overbuilding or do you think this is going to be needed? I think it's overbuilt. I, I think it's totally overbuilt. I, I mean, Ron DeSantis was brilliant by keeping everything open during COVID when all the liberal states and all the blue states were shut down, kept everything open. Everyone came down here. Everyone realized how beautiful Florida is, how beautiful Miami is. But I, I think it is getting too overbuilt right now. It's it's getting a little There's too a lot crowded. Of you know, I drive in the traffic and I say, oh, my God, New Yorkers go home. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. There's like the evolution of the New Yorker. They come over and they're all suit and tied up. And next thing you know, they're wearing the hat. They're chilling. They're vibing. But I do think Miami is such a good hub because there's cultures from all around the world similar to New York. So you get this different spice of different ethnicities and people. So you bring a lot of different uh, business ideas and things like that. So it's interesting to see all the money that's coming to Miami. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is. a. It, I mean, New York, L.A., and Miami are truly unique. I mean, they're all very similar because they're all hubs and they're all finance and they're all driven by big industry and they become very international. Yeah. I mean, you walk around New York, you hear 20 different languages. You walk around Miami, 20 different languages. Same thing with LA. They're truly international cities. So it's interesting in your life because when people look at you and your story and what you've done and what you've built, I mean, I love that article with Impact wrote on you, Man vs. Machine, Bruce Galloway. Uh, it's fascinating. It's fascinating thinking about what your mind thinks about. Because when I first met you and you started talking about just being in the game, 
opening up your like the second the stock market opens up to the second it closes you're in front of your computer you're dialed in i mean you're like a kid at a candy store what when did you first get involved in this world <laughs> that's that's really interesting it, it's a great story i'll tell you the story so so i've always loved numbers i've always been a numbers geek and when i was a kid when i was like 10 11 12 years old i used to play poker and I used to gamble all the time because I loved the challenge of gambling. And I used to bet on horses, bet on sports, poker, this and that. And then I had an aunt who was a stockbroker. And she goes, oh, my God, if you love numbers and gambling, you know, you ought to take a look at the stock market. And she got me a uh, subscription to the S&P 500. And it's 500 stocks in the Standard & Poor's. And I read through all 500 stocks. And I said, you know what? I'm going to take my poker winnings. I was like 13 years old at the time. I'm going to take my poker winnings. I'm going to put it in the stock market. And I bought six stocks. And I bought statistically cheap stocks. I looked at the charts. And I tried to find stocks that were 40 50 80 $100 that are now trading in three and four and five. And it proved to be very successful. And I've been doing it ever since. So you've Just been value look, investing since you were 13. Value investing, exactly. Looking at uh, undervalued, overlooked, throw the baby out with the bathwater type stocks. And that's the ultimate challenge. Try, trying to find that acorn that's going to grow into the you know oak tree. So tell me, tell me a little bit more about that. So value investing is a phrase you don't see that much when you're just surfing the internet. It seems like almost something that you've really tripled, quadrupled down on. What exactly, how would you explain value investing to someone that's never heard of it before? Well, there's, there's really two schools on Wall Street. There's growth investing and value investing. Value is your basic industry companies, plants, equipment, manufacturing, distribution, retail, you know, pretty much bricks and mortar. Growth is, you know, technology, healthcare services, medical device, biotech, et cetera, et cetera. So in the past, in the last 100 years, forget the, 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 the most recent 17 years since the derivative meltdown, in the past 100 years, values always outperformed growth because growth basically flies high when, 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 when money's available and, and the Fed's printing money. And then when the Fed stops printing money, the party ends. It's like musical chairs. And if you recall the tech boom, you know, in 99, 2000, you know, the tech boom, you know, all these internet companies, dot-com companies, e-commerce companies, 98% of them disappeared. Very few of them survived. So, but the value companies stick around. The value companies, they have assets. And they usually have better balance sheets than the, uh, than the growth companies because the growth companies are plowing all their money into grow, to grow. You know, and these growth companies have to compete against, you know, all the cloud computing companies, all the Internet of Things companies, all the cybersecurity competing against each other. And they're throwing money into, you know, growth. They're not throwing it into plant, equipment, human resources, et cetera. So that's the big thing, value versus growth. So in the last 17 years, growth has been pretty much in vogue because as you saw in my article, you know, Wall Street has been taken over by machines. All the bots, yeah. By, by, by algorithms and derivatives. And these algorithms and derivatives are driven by technical factors. So the technical factors are buy on strength, sell on weakness. 
So a lot of the value companies haven't really performed that great because they're not growing. Okay, they're flattish. So Wall Street loves meet and beat. When you, when you report earnings and you beat the earnings, you gap up, your stock gaps up, and then it hits a new high, and then it keeps on going higher and higher and higher and higher because the stop losses kick in, the algorithms kick in, the ETFs kick in, the day traders kick in, the technical traders, the momentum traders, they all kick in and buy it higher, buy it higher, buy it higher. On the flip side, if companies don't meet and beat, they go down and they hit new lows and then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy on the way down. The short sellers come in, the stop losses start selling, the ETFs start lightening up, the derivatives, the, the algorithms, they sell, they sell, they sell. So some companies trade at like two times earnings or three times earnings or, or half a cash or quarter of book. And there's some companies that trade at 100 times revenues or 200 times earnings or 40 times book value, which is ridiculous. It's a real dichotomy. And economically, it doesn't make sense because what you learn in Economics 101 is price elasticity, right? The lower the price goes, the more demand. The higher the price goes, the less demand. It's the opposite when it comes to momentum investing. So you mentioned that a lot of these value companies have assets, and that's a big thing that maybe these other companies don't have as much. So you mentioned plants and other things. What are some of like the most common hard assets that you think are most valuable for value investment companies? Well, the, the assets that I, I, I look at the balance sheet in general and make sure that they have a balance sheet that could support them during downtimes. Because in downtimes, you know, you, you're, you're familiar with Kathy Woods. I'm you know, not. Kathy Woods was the ARK investor. You know, she invested in all these ARK stocks, these super high growth stocks, you know, coming out of COVID and going into COVID. And a lot of those companies had terrible balance sheets and they didn't have any real assets to support the stock price. So when the music ended, a lot of these stocks were down 90%, 95%, 90, 98%. And the ARK investments are down like 90%. So, but if you have plants, equipment, assets, you know, uh, real assets on the balance sheet, real businesses, real businesses that have been around for a long time that have longevity, that have weathered the economic cycles, you're going to survive. You're going to, you're going to do very well. And the assets could be anything, you know, plant, equipment, buildings, uh, goodwill, you know, intellectual property, uh, technology, um, you know, equipment, machines, etc. Well, when you say it like that, it almost kind of sounds obvious, right? Like th those all sound like that would make a lot of sense. To it should be, storm. but it's not. <laughs> why isn't it so obvious to people? And, and, and where, where's the discretion? Because what happened was, you know, during the, the Great Recession of 07, 08, 09, you know, Wall Street flipped over. It, it flipped over and it became very disconjuncted. And it became very dysfunctional. And things didn't make sense because the robots took over. So in the old days, you know, you used to have people sit behind their computers and their spreadsheets. And they used to do... I remember my grandpa used to show me those. He yeah, used he, you, used he to hardcore, you used to do hardcore research. You used to look at the research on a company. You know, General Electric is a great company. They, they make airplane engines. They make... You know, Otis Elevators, they make, 
you know, defense equipment. They make, uh, you know, they make um, tech technology products, electronics. You know, it's a great company, but now no one really cares about that. They, they just care about the momentum. It's all algorithmic and it's all derivatives. So when you go into a hedge fund today or you go into a mutual fund or a bank or an insurance company and you see a hundred people sitting around these screens, they're just trading on algorithms. That's, and they don't even know what they're buying and selling. They just buy on strength and it goes up, they sell it, and then they look for the next thing that breaks out and buys on strength and they should short on weakness and they short it more and short it more and short it more. They don't even know what the hell they, the companies do. So, so today, Wall Street is probably 95% robots and 5% me, 5% analysts, portfolio managers in the traditional sense. So how do you beat these algorithms? That's the question. Right, and that's the big thing that you find so much enjoyment in is exactly. almost figuring out ways to trick the algorithms. Like one thing you were talk the article was discussing is that you like to find super undervalued companies that with doing certain things to the companies you can trick, not not trick, but trick the bots into showing them the things that they look for to see if a company is gaining value. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, so what we do is, you know, you've heard of the democratization of companies a la Reddit and a la, you know, GameStop and yep. AMC Theaters and Bed Bath & Beyond was, charade, yeah. was one of these, you know, uh, darling companies, these Reddit companies. So, so basically, as these companies are going down, they're heavily shorted. So the shorts pile on because as a company goes down, the shorts go in, the derivatives go in, the stop losses go in, the selling picks up and accelerates. So how do you stop that downward trend? Sometimes these downward trends are going on for years and years and years. So the only way you could really stop that downward trend is if there's a catalyst or group of catalysts that's occurring or about to occur that's going to shock the algorithms. Okay, so it's got to be like a major change, like a change in product, a change in balance sheet, a change in the world, a change in uh, tech, you know, anything that's going to be significant. It could be, you know, a major change in earnings. Earnings is the key. Everything is driven by earnings and growth. And if you have profitable growth, that's what Wall Street loves, profitable growth. You know, just like real estate's location, 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 Wall Street's all about profitable growth, profitable growth, profitable growth. So if you have a company that's kind of like, like languishing and all of a sudden they get it right and the earnings are better than expected because they announced some new products, change in management, change in marketing, change in structure, change in technology, and now all of a sudden they're starting to grow and they start to inflect. And if that inflection point is driven by a real major catalyst that has legs and it's going to continue, that stock could go up 10, 15, 20, 30x. Got it. So it's almost identifying those catalysts and seeing what you can do working with the management yeah. team to bring those more to fruition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like you know, I'll give you an example, okay? Everyone is talking about AI right now. All right, you can't yeah. turn on TV or financial Every news. startup is AI. Everything is AI, 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 generative AI, okay? So so we, we invested in a company two and a half years ago that we felt was going to be a major player in AI. 
And this was before AI ever took off. I mean, AI was kind of like developmental. It was kind of like 5G rollouts and IoT. You know, you talk about it, talk about it, talk about it, but it doesn't really happen because everyone says, oh, we're doing AI, but no one's really doing it. Okay. Because the technology wasn't even there yet. Too. So, so we invested in this company who really bet the ranch in AI in 2016 and 2017. They bet the ranch in data compilation, data annotation, and, 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 and operating tools to manage data, to prepare data for large machine learning models. Okay, because you can't use large machine learning models without, without good data. data. So they, they, they have a platform, they have a software platform. Can you mention the company? Or? Yeah, yeah, I could, I'll mention the company in a second. But anyway, this company was kind of like languishing, languishing under the radar screen. And then all of a sudden, Microsoft buys a position in chat GPT. That was about a year ago. That was about a year ago when, when Microsoft does, does this, this, this major deal in chat GPT. And all of a sudden Microsoft, which is the second biggest company in the world goes crazy on the upside. And, and all of a sudden now everyone's chasing generative AI. Everyone and their mothers, every company that's doing over $100 million a year has to have a generative AI strategy for every aspect of their business. Marketing, research and development, you know, you name it, they're doing it. Sales, um, you know, uh, product development, um, analysis, everyone's using generative AI. So this company was ahead of the game and now, now that um, ChatGPT occurred, this company is getting business with everyone. I mean, wow. I mean, they just landed Microsoft, they just landed Google, Amazon Web Services, and Meta, and they they were doing the big four. Right they, they had Twitter. They were doing twenty million dollars a year with Twitter, but then Elon Musk bought them and shut them down. The name of the company is called InnoData. Inno data, and it's still I'm under familiar the familiar with Inno data, yeah. It's still under the radar screen. It's still absolutely under the radar screen. But Thursday, they're going to report earnings, and everyone's going to see this is their coming out party. They actually have a lot of really cool services. I'm specifically pretty familiar with the data space, and they have some awesome use cases. I even remember reading some of their stuff about how they're applying generative AI to all sorts of things, even from like testing, from being able to uh, apply some sort of algorithm to identify cheating and things like that. Like they, there's so many different horizontal use cases for what they're doing, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, they, they actually have two major platforms. They, they have the Golden Gate platform, which is a platform. It's almost like Microsoft's, you know, Microsoft's software platform. It's called the Golden Gate, and you could utilize the Golden Gate platform, and it's supported by 5,000 data engineers overseas, the Golden Gate. And they also have another platform called Agility, which is more for PR and IR and, 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 and publications and stuff like that. But they're about to explode on the upside. They're in an area of AI, which is generative AI information technology services. And Bloomberg just put out a report stating that that niche of generative AI is going to grow from $82 million this year 
to 85 billion by 2034. That's a thousand times growth over less than 10 years. It's incredible. So companies like Inadata are in a better position to t- capitalize on it because of the resources and the foundation that they built. Yeah, exactly. And they 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 have a head start. They yeah. they they have like a two-year head start. Now now billions and billions of dollars are going into all aspects of generative AI, but they 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 already done it. So they have they've they they've done the great leap forward already. And it's just starting. For them, it's just starting. I mean, you're going to see hyper growth starting this quarter. Well, one thing that's interesting about the data world is that a lot of data feeds and, and data that you can buy is getting commoditized, meaning it's, you know, all, all these different companies that are offering different types of data, whether it's like POI data or transaction data, you know, you can buy it from multiple vendors and then people just get squeezed down to the cheapest. And it seems like the insights that people are gaining is really where a lot of the value is coming from. Like, what can we do with all of this data now that we have these giant data sets that are that are? Well, the thing generated? is, you know, every company has their own data sets. Every, every, every company that's doing over 100 million a year has terabytes of data. OK, they have terabytes of data. They don't even know what to do with it. So they have to be in generative AI. They have to be in the game, you know, for FOMO, fear of missing out. And if they're not, the board of directors is going to say, hey, why aren't you doing this? You know, everyone else is doing it. So what Inadata does is they customize the data sets for that particular company. For instance, they're working with J.P. Morgan Chase, the, the biggest bank holding company. They're working with all the big insurance companies, Humana, Cigna. They're working with all these big companies. And right now, the, you know, Inadate is still a tiny company. It's still considered a micro cap company. So that's what I do. I try to find these micro cap companies that are going to become the, the next great companies. Interesting. And then when you think about that, is there anything that could stop something like an Inadata that's totally out of your control? Could be competition. I mean, the competition is eventually going to catch up with them um, because hundreds of millions of dollars, if not Billions of dollars are being poured in by all these startups and everything. But the startups are kind of like running out of steam now also because of the high interest rates. So, you know, one area of startups that are still doing well are generative AI startups. But it's kind of tough to raise venture capital money right now. For sure. You know, I have a friend that's raising $400 million. He's having a rough time and he's got a good track record. But you know, the interest rates are so high right now. So a lot of people are just kind of like deer in headlights right now. Yeah. Well, let's take a step back to, you mentioned how Wall Street's 95% or the stock market's 95% these algorithms. What are the sort of the, the advantages of it? Because you mentioned that, you know, there's there's some value investing that 5% that you're focused on. What are some of the pros and cons that this new world that we live in after 0809? Well, you know, the, the algorithms are designed to really just give you a bit of an edge on the market performance. So if the market's up 6% and you're up 8 or 9%, you're doing great with the algorithms. And that's what most people want. Most people that have institutional money, they're okay with just outperforming 2 or 3 percentage points or 200 basis points. So it, it's a good way to invest that, that, that smooth is smooths out the volatility yeah that gives you you know a low sharp ratio where at as i'm going for the home runs i go for the home runs and the algorithms can't pick up the home runs they can't they can't do the 
that the analysis that I've done by talking to the CEO 10 times, by talking to the chief technology officer 10 times, by talking to the chief marketing officer 10 times, they can't pick up the same, you know, information that I pick up. You know, they, theirs yeah. is mostly trading oriented. Yeah, because, I mean, people want that quick money, too. You know, there's yeah. so many day traders in Miami. What do you think of day traders? Most day traders get killed. Most day traders do it for a year or two, and then they're out of business. You know, 90% of day traders lose money because they're also, they're not that sophisticated. You know, they're going up against Citadel and Goldman Sachs. You know, <laughs> you know, the deck is stacked. Yeah. Yeah, the deck is stacked. Yeah. You, and you look at like the big behemoths like BlackRock. Do you think uh, like BlackRock, for example, is good for society or too big? Well, no, I, I I think it's gotten too big. I think it's got I think these big institutions have gotten too big and the small nimble guys have basically gone away. I mean, they're not not a lot. You know, when I started out in the business doing micro caps and value stocks, you know, I had maybe about 30 friends doing the same thing. And after the great meltdown, after the great derivative bust, you know, most of them are, you know, doing other things now. One guy is doing renovation of townhouses in New York. One guy is doing high interest loans. Yeah. One guy is doing, you know, uh, hard Insurance. lending, you know. <laughs> you know, so the small guys have really disappeared. In your experience, because you've been doing this for a very long time, I can imagine the Citadels, the Black Rocks of the world must have hit you up and begged you to work with them. Not really. Not really. They, they, they want MIT geeks. They want, they want 24-year-old MIT geeks that are going to program a new algorithm for them. Interesting. But you got that OG New Yorker in you. You, you, yeah. you see something, you know it's good, and you dive right in. Yeah, and not, and not only that, we're raising a fund right now to take advantage of all these companies that have been algorithm to death. Like Inadata, you know, was algorithm to death. You know, that there's been a major short run on Inodata. Inodata ran from like two to 15 and a half. And then there was a major short run on it and it was all driven by algorithms and derivatives and the stock got down to like six and change. Now it's coming back up again. But, you know, a lot of these algorithms, you know, they're, they're pretty ruthless. They just want to short things to oblivion and they target a lot of micro cap companies because they're easily manipulable. You can manipulate them very easily. But on the, on the other side is if they're heavily shorted and there is a catalyst and there is a democratization where people pick up on it, you could get a short squeeze from hell. And that's what we look for. We look for short squeezes from hell. And in, in a case like Inadata, you know, it's trading at seven and change right now. I think it's going to $150 within three years. And I think it might get there very shortly because it might be a major short squeeze. Because when they report earnings and they report all this great news with all the mega cap tech companies, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go through the roof. Is it specifically generation generational AI type companies you're looking to invest in with this new fund? No, or we, are you focused? We we focus on a lot of things. We focus on a lot of things. We we look at companies that are just down ninety percent, ninety five percent, ninety eight percent. You know, one of our big holdings is Lyft. Lyft has been also doing great, turning around, making money, great balance sheet, tons of cash on the balance sheet. But you know what? 
Uber's the darling. Uber's the algorithmic and derivative darling, and it goes up, and it's trading at like four times revenues, whereas Lyft, which is a duopoly, is trading at like three quarters of revenues. Lyft was a unicorn. You know, now it's selling at nine bucks a share, yeah, down from wild. 75. And to think about how much you use Lyft, too. I mean, yeah. Lyft is, it's, you yeah, check but, Lyft and Uber every time. But, but the stock market makes no sense. That's what I'm saying. There are things that make zero sense at all. So you have to become very comfortable with that. That's yeah. almost like day one of stock market trading today. Yeah. This doesn't make any sense. <laughs> a lot of things don't. You take, for instance, a company called BuzzFeed. You know BuzzFeed? Yeah, they're... Yeah. They own Huffington Post. It's the largest digital news service out there. Okay, they're not doing that great. You know, they've had some changes on the Facebook platform and on the Instagram platform that kind of like set them back a little bit. But it's still a great company and it still has hundreds and hundreds of millions of followers. The stock's down from 12 bucks to 30 cents. 30 cents. It's trading at literally two cents on the dollar. It's down 98%. So we think BuzzFeed is going to be a major beneficiary of AI. Just think about it. You could write an article with AI today. So quick. You know, if you want a history of the Gaza Strip, you know, from 1945, from post-World War II, they'll write the story, generative AI. So, so BuzzFeed is going to be a major beneficiary of AI and that Buzzfeed already has the infrastructure to be able to lev like roll it out on a mass. Yeah. Level especially too. with hundreds and hundreds of millions so of once followers. These, once these, uh, these algorithms catch note of that, it's, it's all gravy. Exactly. And a lot of these stocks could go up 10 X in a very short period of time. And that's what we look for. Is that what keeps you up at night? Is that, is that the excitement right yeah, there? Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I love, I love stocks. I look at hundreds of companies. I, I read, I look at the balance sheets. I call CEOs. I call CFOs. I call people on the street, analysts, brokers, bankers, um, portfolio managers all over the place, you know, trading ideas, you know, trying to, trying to find the, the, the next big things. You have any notable heartbreaks, anything that almost took you out? Uh, Rite Aid, <laughs> Rite Aid killed me. Really? Rite Aid's a twenty-two billion dollar company making four or five hundred million dollars a year. You know, Albertsons tried to buy them at twenty-seven bucks a share. They turned it down. They didn't accept it. Uh, they sold half the company to Walgreens. They kept the other half, and and they just couldn't get out of their own way. And you know, the company went from like two dollars down to twenty cents, and so now it's in bankruptcy. So those ones you just got to take on the chin. Yeah, yeah. Some, you know, you can't be right all the time. You know, a good investor is right 52, 53% of the time. 53. And wrong 47%. If you're right more than you're wrong, you're doing great. And when you're right, you have to learn how to maximize the wins and minimize the losses. So when I buy stocks, they're abandoned by Wall Street. You know, they're trading at two, three, four, five bucks, 50 cents. 80 cents, $3 but down from 50, 60. Yeah. You're talking to the CFOs. You know where their head's at. You know where yeah. they want to go. So the downside is minimal. You know, if you buy a $2 stock, your downside is $2. But if it works, it goes from 2 to 20. Interesting. But that inside, not inside information, but that due diligence that you do, calling all the, the executives of these companies and making sure that they're aligned with the future vision, 
I mean, ha- being able to yeah. pick up the phone and get those calls. And that yeah. must be just due to your, you, you know, you've been in this world for so long. Yeah. That- yeah. People know me. People pick up my phone calls. I, I could get through to any CEO or any, you know, CFO that I need to get through to. Is a lot of this, um, w- has building a team been tough for you throughout the years? Not really. Not really. I've, I've got a team of about six or seven people, you know, analysts, support people, administrative people, uh, marketing people that have been with me for many years. Really? That's awesome. So you guys got a yeah. little dream team going on. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's you against the world, you against the big guys. So right now what we're doing is, you know, right now there's so many companies that have been algorithm to death, like this BuzzFeed, which is trading at 30 cents down from 12 bucks. There's literally hundreds of companies like that that are trading at two, three cents on the dollar. So what we're doing now is we're raising a fund to invest in these things. And we're also raising a companion fund to buy out these companies and take them private because we could buy these companies really cheap now. So now is the most opportune. I've been doing this stuff for 40 years. I've never seen such distressed prices in the marketplace as I see right now. So there's a huge opportunity for people that take advantage of Incredible. But that's like the great example of when times are tough and we're in a depression, you know, the world's falling apart. Everyone's freaking out about the price of eggs and they're not seeing the opportunity. But people that have been around the block, they've lived through these depressions, they've seen recessions, they see opportunity. And some of the best times where there's transfers of wealth is when there is depressions and then when there is yeah, recessions. Yeah. I, I mean, the old adage is, you got to buy them when they're puking them out. When when there's death and destruction, you got to step up. And when the ducks are quacking, you got to feed them. Yeah. You know, but 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 most people don't do that because when things are going up, people get greedy and they chase. And when things go down, people get nervous and scared and they sell. So, you know, John Q Public always works on emotion. And you sell on weakness and you buy on strength. You're supposed to do the opposite. You're supposed to go against your emotions. Interesting. And that's what I do. I buy like 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 in a data, you know, there was a short run on the stock, and the stock, you know, two months ago was fifteen and it went down to six and change. And a lot of people are calling me up and saying, What's wrong? What's wrong? Is this a fraud? Is this a scam? Is this not working? Is uh, do they really have these contracts? Da, 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 da. And they said, absolutely 100%. Don't get scared. Don't be feared. And some people got scared and sold it. I was buying more. It In the article, it meshes, mentioned that Warren Buffett's a big icon to you. Is yeah. That, is that the case? Has he always been? Yeah, he's, he's the man. He's, he's, he's the ultimate value investor. And he's made, you know, 40,000 times on his money in the last, you know, 63 years. He's the legend. So when, yeah. you, when you first got involved, you were like, I want to be like Buffett. Exactly. Exactly. But it's, it's tougher now because I'm up against the algorithms. He wasn't. And you're up against things like crypto, these new things in the space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now you're up against the bond market also, which is yielding 5.5%. <laughs> that's gnarly. What are your thoughts on crypto? Do you think that's a great example of people panicking and riding the waves and ex- seeing greed? So, you know, I get this question all the time. Okay, so my answer is, number one, I know very little bit about it. Okay, it's kind of like a new thing, and it's not in my bailiwick. Number two... I tell people, you know, it's kind of like a herd mentality right now because I think 
the herd is going with crypto right now. And I tell people, if you run with the herd, be prepared to get slaughtered with the herd. Now, on the positive side, you know, I think there are people that don't trust currencies and don't trust their governments and people are dis disillusioned with the United States and people in Russia are disillusioned with Russia. Chinese are disillusioned with China. So this is an alternative to putting money into their currencies. So I think it will go up. Whether it's for me, it's it's just not for me. But I think it will probably go up because yeah. I think it's an alternative to currencies and, and fluctuations in currencies. Looking at more international, the world, what's happening all around, what do you think is, is the future for the United States? Like when it, there's a lot of things that get thrown around that the U.S. is going to lose, you know, the, the power war, if you were, against China and some of these other countries and, you know, more than faster than ever, you know, we're falling behind in many categories. What's your take on that? I'm glad you asked that question because I have a very, very strong take on it. Okay, right now, the United States is at war. We are at war right now. I mean, we are in a wartime economy. Okay, and that's why the economy is held up so well. Everyone's saying the Fed has raised rates from zero to five and a half percent. How could the economy still be growing? And how could the economy still be strong when there's such a huge spike in interest rates? The best thing for an economy is a war. Okay, what got us out of the Great Depression, World War II? We're at war with China. Number one, we've been exporting all of our production and manufacturing and all our jobs to China for the last 50, 60 years. It started with Japan, then it moved to China. And number two, China is out to take over the world. They have a billion, 500 million people. They're three and a half times the size of Western Europe and the United States put together. They're five times the size of the United States. They have kind of been exploited by the rest of the world, by, by Western Europe and the United States. And now they say, China's rising, it's our turn, and we want to take over the world. And they're out to take over the world, and we know it. We know it, and we're fighting them now. That's why we're spending trillions and trillions of dollars, not on frigates and bombs and missiles, but on... Internet of Things, satellite technology, generative AI, 5G rollouts, cybersecurity. That's where the war is going to be fought. That's where the money is getting invested. That's, yeah, exactly. It's getting funneled into the, the tech war. Which and, is and, and then again, we have to bring back all the manufacturing, all the production that's crucial to the United States. We've got to bring it back. So we're, we're, we're in a cold war with, with China. I mean, forget Russia. Russia's nothing. Russia's you know, the 15th largest economy in the world. China today is the biggest economy in the world. China is bigger than us. It's crazy to think. How do you, yeah. how do you come back though? Like you mentioned, 50, 60 years of outsourcing those jobs. How do you come back from that? Well, we'll keep the low value added jobs there. You know, like the, the, the clothing manufacturing, the shoes, you know, the plastics, the toys. We'll leave that the stuff there. The automatable type of jobs. Yeah, but, the, but, the, but the crucial stuff like semiconductors and mechanicals and, you know, automotive and, you know, like defense technologies, that, that we're going to bring back. There, I, I need to get refreshed on this, but I believe that anyone, people in China can buy property in the U.S. fairly easy. 
compared to like the vice versa that someone in the u.s can't buy property in china yeah everything is controlled in china you, you can't own businesses in china you can't own businesses in china you have to have a chinese partner and you have to give them your codes you have to give them your technology that's why facebook isn't in china google's not in china china says you want to come here you got to give us your codes you got to give us your it yeah how do you that's a that's a big thing to yeah. overcome how do you beat that <laughs> you can't you, you can't be there you know you can't be there you, you can't know be there um china's doesn't play fairly they, they don't play fairly they don't play on an even keel you know it's our way or the highway and they feel that you know with their economy being at you know like 40 trillion dollars today and growing faster than anyone else and having access to 1.5 trillion p people you know, 1.5 billion people, <laughs> 1.5 billion people having access to that. They're going to say, if you want access, you got to play our way. Would you put the same um, in the same line of thinking, the war with Israel and what's happening in Ukraine? Would you put that in the same bucket as um, using war to essentially help us get out of a, of a, of a recession? No, no, the, the, those are too small. I mean, we're, we're, we're giving, you know three to six billion to Israel, which we give them anyway, because they're the only democracy in that whole region. And, you know, it's to us, it's like the 51st state and we're giving 60 billion to Ukraine. You know, that's, that's nothing compared to a 20, $26 trillion economy. Yeah. So, well you know, said. it doesn't really affect us either which way. So what do you think the future of Wall Street's going to look like? Like, do you think that value investing will always have a place? Or do you think eventually that 95 becomes 100? Uh, what do you mean 95 becomes 100? The 95%? Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, value investing will always have a place. Value mm -hmm. investing will always have a place. Because when growth busts out, which it usually does, it flip-flops back to value. What keeps you up at night? What are the days that, that you just can't fall asleep? What when, do you think when about? my stocks are going down for no reason at all, but just algorithmic selling <laughs> when I know that I have really good companies and they're just being shorted by algorithms and derivatives. That's what keeps me up. And it just, does it just make you angry or anxious? It makes me both, <laughs> both of those <laughs> angry things. and anxious. Are you the type of person that's checking 24 seven? Are you just boom, boom, boom? Yeah. Yeah. I'll get up a couple of times in the evening and check the futures and check to see what, uh, what's going on in the world. You know, I, I, I always keep, abreast of what's going on internationally especially now with two wars going on and what are your major sources of truth like what are you reading to to keep you uh, informed about what's happening in the um world? i basically use cnbc and also bloomberg bloomberg and cnbc and yahoo finance those, Th those are the three that i look at and, and use pretty 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 um consistently do you think there's any really overrated publications no no but but uh, as far as the micro stuff goes on, on the company stuff i do my own research got it so I, I depend on my own research i don't look at wall street research because wall street's always wrong wall street always like recommends things after they've gone up a lot and they always recommend sales and things after they've dropped a lot, after, after the news is already out. They never, they never for, foresee things. I try to foresee things. So when raising these funds, I mean, there's a lot of responsibility, obviously, on your shoulder when you're raising a fund. 
what made you feel ready to when you first started doing this? Like, what was that that feeling of I'm gonna I'm gonna put my neck out. I'm the hero or the villain. Well, what so so the last five and a half years, I had a partnership. Galloway Capital was a partnership with a billionaire real estate investor in New York. And what we were doing was putting together a track record. And I think you saw the track record on my website, GallowayCap.com. And my track record is averaging about 40% a year for the last six years. So now that we have this track record, you know, that's basically our calling card to go out and raise the big bu- big money right now. Got it. So this is your time right yeah, now. Yeah, this is it. This, this is, is it. where you're bringing on. And most value funds have underperformed tremendously. But I have performed because my value fund is a catalyst slash activist driven fund. So we look at value in a different way that other people look at value. Tell me more about that. Well, it's catalyst driven. I think I explained it to you. We look for a major change that's going to take you know, a secular downtrend and create an inflection point. And then that inflection point is going to have legs to be a, you know, a, 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 a climb up, basically. A and, climb and, you, up. and you look at these companies across many different verticals. You're not just looking in one area. Do you, do you need to hit a certain threshold with the amount of companies in your portfolio? Well, you know, we, we, we usually look at like, we look at hundreds of companies. We usually invest in like 40 plus companies and we usually like hit a grand slam home run in two companies. The unicorns that go from like two to 10, two to 20, three to 40, you know, things like that. And then we kind of like strike out like on a right aid. Yeah. And then the rest of them just move with the market. You know what? I have a good friend, but it's almost like venture capital investing, you know, venture capital investing. You're going to have a major home run. That's going to, put you on the map i have a good friend matt he loves sports betting and uh man always is betting on sports he was a ufc sports agent so he knows a lot about fighting and he's like nine out of ten consistently on these cards because he just understands it so well he's no longer a ufc agent he's actually my co-partner with cigars.com but when i started betting with him we used to uh i used to just throw some money on the fights because it'd be fun right throw a hundred dollars here ten dollars there and i'd almost always lose and a big reason was i bet emotionally i bet on who i wanted to win not on who actually would win and that's something i learned from just the little thing of doing that has that ever hurt you in the past betting on companies that you want to win because you met the ceo and you think he's a great guy or have you become really good at you know keeping it really objective yeah sometimes sometimes you get kind of like pulled into the whole bullshit and this and that, you know, for instance, we, we, we recently invested in a company that was in the, uh, public safety communications industry. And this company had a better mousetrap and they hired all the people from Motorola, you know, um, um, you know, Motorola communications. Yeah. And Motorola is the category killer in that space. You know, all these, you know, safety, protective, police, fire, homeland security, they use Motorola. And and they built a better mousetrap and they kind of like promoted it to us and promoted it to us. And they told us how great it was. Went up to the plant, kicked the tires. We were oh, this is great. These guys are going to kill it. You know, and, and then, you know, as we went down the road and we were involved with the company for many years and they just couldn't perform, couldn't perform, couldn't perform. 
And then the guy, the CEO, started lying to us. And then the first time he lied, we said maybe it was a miscalculation. The second time he lied, we said, forget it. Let's get the hell out. And we sold our entire position. Wow. So you, you live and learn, you know, because in the micro cap business, small cap business, a lot of CEOs kind of like bullshit, you know, they want you to invest. So they kind of like oversell the story. So you got to be careful not some to of the be best over- salespeople have are storytellers. Yeah, you, you got to. So so the biggest pitfall is is not to be oversold by some of these CEOs and CFOs. Interesting. And really going back to the foundational roots. Yeah. Things like you mentioned. What assets do they have? What do the balance sheets look like? Are exactly. they trading under those balance sheets consistently? Does it make sense with the current economy, with where things are going? Can AI influence them? All of these types of things you're thinking about. Yep. Do you have like a, exactly. a do you have a board where you have your like five top winners and then you're just looking at No, those no, five? I have my computers, you know, I have all my names on the computers. Do you have I any go. old school ways of doing it that just is your way, like pen and paper? How do you roll? No, no, I just, you know, have, you know, all my portfolios and all my uh, accounts and everything. And I just manage them, balance them, you know, as things go up, I sell a little bit, you know, as it comes down, I buy more, you know, I trade around the positions. Um, I'm constantly talking on the phone with, you know, other brokers, analysts, you know, portfolio managers, you know, trading ideas. Talking about like 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 for instance like in a data what what's the earnings going to be like what yeah. do you think you know how much are they going to make what are they going to announce da 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 you know we'll we'll try to figure out you know what's going on because the earnings calls are the key you know that's when they t- that's the tell all yeah one thing we always talk about on the damn good day show is is uh, stress <laughs> how do you deal with stress you know a lot of people always ask me how do I deal with stress. But you know what? I'm used to it. I've been doing it for over 40 years. So I'm used to the ups and downs. And I, I'm used to having bad days and good days. So you can have a bad day and then just go yeah. walk down the street like a Jolly Rancher yeah, and you're yeah, good to yeah. go. Yeah. You don't need the beach. You could be anywhere. You're just I mean, happy. for instance, the last three months has been awful. The last three months have been just absolutely miserable. August, September, October, three months of misery. But, you know, I, I don't let it get to me. I don't let it get to me because you know what? As stock prices come down, I get depressed because I'm losing money, but I get also excited because they come down in price. I could buy more. It's an opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, data, you know, data has come down from 15 to six and three quarters. I'm just buying it every day. Well, it seems like for someone that you've been doing this for so long, you really need to know yourself when you're, yeah. when you're running these giant, these giant hedge funds. So you're raising a big fund. That's exciting. Yeah, we're raising $500 million for an investment fund based in Guernsey in the UK. And then we're raising a companion fund, which is going to be a buyout fund to take advantage of all these like really low price stocks. And we're going to be filing, you know, 13 D's and 13 G's, which are activist investments where you have between five and 10%. And we're going to try to enhance the value of these companies, working with the companies to get the story out. And if we can't get the stock price up, we'll take them private because now's the time to really build another Berkshire Hathaway. Well, the truth is I'm looking at the next buffer right now, and it's been a pleasure, and I'm grateful right, that you've cool. been hanging out here, like letting us know. It's yeah. exciting stuff, man. This is a crazy, yeah, crazy yeah. stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot of fun. You know, when you have a, when you have a company that, 
goes up 10x, 20x, you know, that's then that makes your life, you know, it could make your life. You know, if you have, you know, a lot of money in it and it goes up 10, 20x, you know, you're set. You're set. <laughs> you so got financial freedom. Something we always ask yeah. everyone on the show is if you could go back in time and you could talk to younger Bruce, like 16 year old Bruce. You're like, yo, what's up, Bruce? We only got a few minutes, man. And you could have told yourself something that could have mm-hmm. saved you a ton of time, money, heartaches, headaches. What are some of the things that you would have told yourself? You know what I tell people, young people that are starting out in the business? First of all, I tell people, learn research. Research, research, research. Learn how to analyze. Learn how to dissect a balance sheet and how to analyze a company in the whole school of things with competition the industry the economy etc focus on research and focus on what you want to do and stay with it don't flip-flop don't go from bonds to stocks stocks to derivatives derivatives to crypto crypto to etfs you know stick to one thing become really good at it and stay focused Bruce, how can people follow you? They, they hear about this fund. They're getting excited. They're like me. They're like, how can I get involved? How can people uh, well, reach out? You know, we, we have we have a website, GallowayCap.com, and it's password encrypted. It's not for everyone, but the password is value with a small V, V-A-L-U-E. And, um, you know, it's they could reach out to me there. And um, our new fund is the Galloway Shepherd Fund. Galloway Shepherd Fritz Shepard is my partner. He's a foreigner. He's he's a, a Swiss English American uh, person who's very tied in with the institutions and the family offices in Europe, Middle East, and and India. So he's he's raising the money. So we have a website for that also, Galloway Shepherd Fund. Man, I appreciate this. This has been a nugget. And and, and, and fear people, you know, InnoData could make a difference in their lives. And 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 the symbol is INOD. INOD and I'm going to give it to people because I like helping out John Q public because those are the people that need it the most. It's not the institutions that have 2 billion going to 6 billion. It's people that have 20,000 and 30,000 and 50,000 going to like 200,000. That that makes a difference. So INOD can make a difference in people's lives. Another one that I really like over here is a company called um um Lyft, we we spoke about Lyft. Lyft is a exciting company, and another company is called um, Pioneer Power. Pioneer Power PPSI is another one that can make a difference in people's lives. They do mobile electric vehicle charging. So the big shortfall with electric vehicles today is charging anxiety. You know, you're running out of charge. You got to find a charger. You got to wait 20 minutes, 30 minutes. You got to drive 20 minutes to get there. They do mobility for EV charging. And they also do backup power for all the big, big uh, institutional companies like Walmart and like Costco and all that stuff also. And that company is just starting in the first inning also, just like, um, you know, data. So those are two companies that I think are going to be hyper growth companies that could really make a difference in people's lives. Thank you for PPSI that and INOD and Lyft. PPSI, INOD, and Lyft. You heard it here first, yep. folks. Yeah. Bruce Galloway. All right. First <laughs> podcast in a little while. Not no. a lot of them coming. This is it. Yeah. Yeah. We were going to do this anyway. Oh, we appreciate you, man. Thank you so okay, much for coming cool. on the show. Until next time. All right. Thank you.